Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. NSL Double Talk featuring Alexi Ash Myers and Melanie Thompson. Their topic today is the horrors and realities of human trafficking. Alexi is an attorney for Sanctuary for Families, New York's leading service provider and advocate for survivors of domestic violence, sex trafficking, and related forms of gender violence. Prior to joining Sanctuary for Families, Alexi was an assistant district attorney with the Brooklyn's DA Special Victims Bureau and Human Trafficking Bureau. Alexi co-chairs the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition. She is named one of New York's new abolitionists for her work in anti-trafficking. Melanie is a speaker, activist, and leader in the global fight to end sex trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation. Trafficked in New York at the age of 12, arrested for prostitution a few years later, and placed in the foster care system, she became an activist at the age of 14. Melanie has testified before numerous legislatures about the need to pass strong anti-trafficking laws and ending the arrests of sex trafficked and prostituted children and women in the sex trade. She's a student at Hunter College and intends to open up her own nonprofit organization to assist victims of sex trafficking and prostitution. We are thrilled to welcome Alexi and Melanie to NSL Double Talk. Hi, Melanie. Hey, Alexi. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about the work that we're doing. The topic is sex trafficking and the sex trade and the links between sex trafficking and prostitution. And that's a link that a lot of people don't make, right? Even when there's frontline news stories, like those about Robert Kraft or Jeffrey Epstein, most people really haven't thought about the links between the sex trade, prostitution, and sex trafficking. When we talk about it, we really want to emphasize to people that you can't separate the two issues, that they're inextricably linked, that sex trafficking is the vehicle that brings you to prostitution. Do you want to explain, or do you have anything to add about the links between sex trafficking and prostitution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people don't recognize, as you mentioned, that trafficking is the vehicle in which people get into prostitution. And we always say at my office that you can be in prostitution not having been trafficked, but Almost every time someone's traffic, it's to end in prostitution. And a lot of people try to separate the two in their minds. They say prostitution is a choice, whereas trafficked people are people who are kidnapped or, you know, quote unquote, forced into prostitution, not having recognized that trafficking and prostitution, the people that are both involved, all come from the same types of vulnerabilities. So something you just said that's really interesting to me is about this notion of choice. And a lot of people when talking about the sex trade really want to delineate for themselves. Is this person in it by choice? Is it consensual? What does that really even mean to be in the sex trade by choice? And by putting it in that framework, what are you doing to the person in prostitution? Uh, well, choice is a misconception when it comes to prostitution or the sex trade. Um, a lot of people only see things from the surface. And usually when people talk about choice, as it pertains to people in prostitution, they're referring to people who are quote unquote in the stripping industry or people who are webcamming or phone sex operating. However, within the population of people in prostitution, there's only less than 2% of individuals who are in there by quote unquote choice. 
95 plus percent of individuals who are in prostitution are there because of a lack of choice or a lack of resource. And people really need to take into account the precursors that lead you into prostitution or lead you into being trafficked. Some of those precursors include race, over 95 plus percent of individuals in prostitution are black and brown women and girls, as well as overwhelmingly 40 plus percent of black and brown trans-identifying individuals. Poverty, if you're marginalized, that's automatically a vulnerability. If you come from foster care, immigration status, and if you had any prior sexual abuse history in your past, those are all things that make you extremely vulnerable to being trafficked and to being put into prostitution. So when people think of this idea of choice, they never take into account the lack of choices that you have. So of course, prostitution seems like a viable option to somebody that has no other options. Yeah, we talk a lot and we know a lot of, from our the clients that we work with and from research that's been done is that exploiters and pimps really exploit people when they're at their most vulnerable because of that vulnerability. So to talk about choice of the person who's in prostitution, I see, and I wonder if you agree, is a sort of victim blaming um, and that she's gotten herself into this situation when really when I look at a situation of prostitution, and a situation of sex buying, the person with the choice is the sex buyer and the exploiter. They decide what sex acts they want to do. They decide when, where, how. They decide if they're going to beat you or they're going to withhold money from you or what's going to happen. And the person who's in prostitution has very little choice in that situation. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um this idea of victim blaming is so spot on. To me, it's the equivalent of victim blaming as it pertains to somebody in sexual assault or rape. You know, when somebody's raped, oftentimes in our society, we're always conditioned to ask, well, what was she wearing? What was she doing out at 12 in the morning? Where, what party was she going to? It's the same notion in prostitution. Well, why did she decide to strip? Why didn't she go on welfare? Why didn't she decide to do X, Y, Z? As opposed to saying, why is this man coming out of his wallet to purchase sexual access to my body? And in my case, I can definitely attest to the fact that sex buyers are the ones with the choice. It's not me. And it's not even my exploiter. It's the person who's purchasing me. So I guess we should back up for our listeners because you just talked a little bit about your experience. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your lived experience is and how it's brought you to this work? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely jumped a gun here. So I was trafficked here in New York when I was 12 years old. I was kidnapped on my way home from a movie theater with my friends and I was brought to an abandoned house and I was locked in a closet. And from that point on, I've been exposed to prostitution ever since. Thereafter, I was exploited on, through many vehicles, on, on the internet, on street walking, underground strip clubs, and then eventually I was arrested and put into foster care. So I've kind of seen the intersectionality of all of these systems. Mm. So that's where my perspective is coming from. And I know from hearing you speak before and working with you that there was a point in your life where you were in prostitution without a pimp. And I think that also really ties into the conversation we were just having about choice because I've heard you say you thought at that time that you were choosing that. Yeah. And and then looking back and in processing it through therapy, you realize it really wasn't. There was a time when I was in prostitution once my pimp disappeared and I thought that this was empowerment. And as it pertains to prostitution today, you'll hear a lot of people say, especially because there's such a debate on whether or not this should be fully decriminalized, a lot of people talk about this idea of choice or autonomy or an agency. And when I was in prostitution at 16, I remember thinking to myself, I don't have a pimp, so now I'm independent and I'm going to make my own money and this is empowering and this is liberation for myself. But something kept on popping into my head, right? If this is empowerment, why do I still keep crying after every sex buyer? Or why is it that I have to 
you know, forgive my vulgarity, but why do I have to keep bending over to not look at this person in the face? Or why is it that every rule that my pimp instilled that's in my head is still being um, executed here in these hotel rooms or in the back of these cars, etc.? And I realize it's because nothing about prostitution is empowering. Mm-hmm. Anytime your body is being sold for a price, you have now become a commodity. There's no such thing as empowerment when the dollar is what determines what you can do, cannot do, can say, cannot say. And this idea of empowerment, in my opinion, honestly comes from this notion that if you can't beat them, join them. So a lot of people have this idea in their head, sex sells, prostitution is the oldest profession, quote unquote. They love to say things like, prostitution is never going to go away. So if you live with that notion in mind, the only way to get out of your oppression is to join the oppression and try to reclaim it. And by doing so, or in doing so, you tend to get this idea of empowerment or liberation or choice in order to make this better. But I can attest to the fact that the only reason we call this a choice or society calls this a choice is because we're conditioned to having to do that. We have to succumb ourselves to calling this a choice or empowerment in order to get through it because otherwise... Right, it's a survival mechanism. Absolutely. If, if we didn't call it a choice or empowerment, we would be losing our minds because of all of the harms that we've experienced in this lifestyle. Yeah. So you brought up race and I want to talk about the role that race plays in the sex trade for a minute because it often determines who's bought, who's selling, who's arrested. Can you talk about the racial hierarchy and the discrimination that exists within the patriarchal institution of prostitution? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned a little while ago, over 95 plus percent of individuals that are that are exploited in prostitution are black and brown women and girls mostly. And then there's an overwhelmingly 40 plus percent of LGBTQ and trans gender nonconforming identifying folks. Over 75 percent of sex buyers are white men with disposable income. You'll also see that 1%, the Jeffrey Epsteins, the Robert Crafts, et cetera. But many of them are overwhelmingly white individuals with money to spend on what they call a hobby. And in prostitution, you'll see those racial narratives play out, whether behind closed doors with the sex buyer, where they... There's, I can get into details, but there's like slave play and there's all types of things that these people pay for that literally speaks to their power and privilege because of their, their racial dynamic. Mm-hmm. And the buyers we know really are the economic engine of this industry. They drive the demand. So if there cease to be buyers, if we were able to educate men to create a society in which it's unheard of that men can buy sexual access to women the sex trade would cease to exist. And that's our ultimate goal. So here we can kind of transition to what's happening legislatively and what's happening with with social norms. There's three legal frameworks really that govern the sex trade. One is the status quo, and that's criminalization, where all parties are criminalized and arrested. While this is happening well in practice in places like New York and California, there's other progressive districts where police have stopped arresting the people in prostitution, it's still illegal. Um, And that's in all 50 states. There's a second legal framework that's being pushed by some very loud Democrat people who believe themselves to be liberals and progressive and feminists, but that's to fully decriminalize the sex trade. And the problem is that a lot of people hear that and on its face, 
think, yeah, I'm in favor of decriminalizing people in prostitution. There's a lot buried in what that means to fully decriminalize the sex trade. It includes decriminalizing sex buyers. You know, we just talked about how sex buyers drive the demand and actually Melanie a little bit later can get into the violence at the hands of sex buyers. But it also talks about the decriminalization bill would fully decriminalize exploiters, traffickers, and pimps. It allows for sex tourism. It allows for brothel keeping. As long as someone is over 18 years old, you can pimp them under this legislation. And we are staunchly opposed to it. And we know from looking at other countries that have done it, like Germany, um, Amsterdam, and New Zealand, that the level of violence and abuse rises exponentially, that trafficking rises exponentially. Um, And so our reasons for opposing it aren't just anecdotal. We can actually look at these countries and the data and who fills the legal brothels in Germany and how much sex buying has increased there. And it's just really horrifying. Alas, there is a third alternative, and it's something that we support, that we are working on drafting legislation for, and this is called the Equality Model. The Equality Model is based off the law that Sweden adopted in 1999, and it has been adopted since by, I think, seven, it might be more, um, countries. And so now it's called the Equality Model. It used to be called the Nordic Model, but it no longer encompasses just Nordic countries. So you first and foremost decriminalize people on prostitution. It really recognizes that prostitution is gender-based violence, that no one should ever be arrested for their exploitation, but instead should be offered robust social services. So built into our legislation, we are looking at areas to find funding in order to provide those social services for the people who are in prostitution, want to exit prostitution, but nevertheless, they're not going to be arrested anymore. Where we part ways from this full decrim model is that We want to tackle the demand, and so we want to keep legal prohibitions against sex buying and pimping and brothel keeping. The biggest reason for keeping it illegal for sex buyers is that if you take away, remove all social barriers and legal barriers to sex buying, there will be a huge increase in the amount of men who are now deterred by it being illegal, who don't currently go and buy sex those men will go and buy sex. It won't be frowned upon. It'll be accepted in the workplace. It'll be accepted on the train, on your way home. It will become normal practice. And there aren't enough willing participants in the sex trade to fill that need, to fill that demand. And the supply will have to be increased. And who fills that supply? Those vulnerable populations. Hence why trafficking and prostitution are so inextricably linked. Because in order to fill that increase in supply, We don't have enough people here to do it, so you have to traffic individuals into prostitution. And one of my favorite parts, in addition to all of that, about the equality model is the fact that it allocates this funding for aftercare services. And that's the one differentiation between all three of these models. You can criminalize it, which is what we have. We know that doesn't work. We can fully decriminalize it. Even then, we take these people out of prostitution. Then what happened? Over 95 plus percent of us that have exited prostitution have relapsed at some point because you can take the person out of prostitution, but if you put them right back into that same impoverished, marginalized community, what happens? You're still back with no resources. So this is the only model that not only takes the stigma off of us who are exploited and focuses on the harms that sex buyers and pimps put into the sex trade, but it also says, now that you're out, we need to help you reintegrate into society and give you the resources that you need to live a sustainable life so that prostitution is no longer seen as a viable option. This is honestly the only model that's going to work. So, Alexi, for the sake of our listeners, would you want to expand more upon how you got into this work? 
Yeah. So I answer this question different ways, but if you go really far back, I grew up in a house where human rights abuses and violations were talked about daily. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors and it was just instilled in us. You're not a bystander. If there's something you feel strongly about, even if it's the unpopular opinion, which I'm learning, you you stand up for it and you um, advocate for what you believe. So I went to law school. I had been working in a prosecutor's office that had a crime prevention unit and I was doing a lot of work in domestic violence and family abuse. And there's a lot of intersectionality between domestic violence and human trafficking. So for my law school internship, I interned at a human trafficking organization that worked abroad in Southeast Asia. And part of my research at that internship was about what was happening in New York and trying to help figure out ways to hold exploiters accountable in civil cases. And so then I sought out a job at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office doing human trafficking cases. I prosecuted those for five years and I made the switch a couple of years ago to Sanctuary for Families where I work now and I'm a staff attorney working on policy and legislation because I truly believe that if you can change from inception, if you can prevent sex buying from even happening and this form of gender-based violence from even happening, you can affect far more change than prosecuting a handful of pimps after the fact. So I've loved working on legislation. And in the past few years, we've been successful in passing some pieces of legislation that really strengthen our human trafficking laws. All right, so Melanie, we were working on this campaign for the equality model. You're this fierce advocate. You're brilliant. I love every time I hear you talk, I'm just in awe. But you just told this harrowing story. So there's some pieces missing. Will you fill us in and what happened that brought you to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, I was arrested and put into foster care. And before I got into foster homes, I was in a lot of facilities. So one of the first facilities that I was at was this residential juvenile detention facility up in Westchester County. And at the time I was 14 and a famous New York Times editor actually came up to the facility to interview the director of the program or the unit that I was in, which was a specific unit for those who have been in sex trafficking or exploited. And I remember she, the director, said to the New York Times editor, why don't you interview one of our girls here? And at the time it was me. Don't know why she chose me. Maybe it was fate. <laughs> but I remember doing this this interview with him and when it came out in the New York Times, it was such this tiny column in the side of the paper that I'm not, I'm sure many people bypassed. But from that point on, I started getting these requests to do interviews for Eyewitness News and all these local news stations. And I realized at that point that my voice could really travel a lot farther than it has in prostitution, for sure. I'm also one of 10. So for me, I recognized at the time that my siblings were around the age that I was kidnapped. So for me, it was a... My siblings are really my motivation in continuing this work, although it gets hard and re-triggering a million times. However, um, if I hadn't done that small interview, I don't think I'd be in this fight or in this debate and, you know, be the advocate that I am today. So so in addition to fighting against this full decriminalization push legislatively, we're also really having to fight the narrative, this misinformation campaign that you alluded to of empowerment and um, feminism and progressive. And part of the campaign we're fighting against is this sex work is work. And um, will you talk about why we don't use the language of sex work? Absolutely. So I love to say sex work is neither. Sex is not work and work is not sex. And it's honestly a really offensive term to all of us who have been exploited in the sex trade. 
what many people don't understand, and this goes back to my notion of people only see things on the surface, a lot of people are pro this sex work narrative because they see prostitution as an individual autonomous choice. Again, going back to those vulnerabilities and recognizing that you can't make a choice if you don't have choices. However, you have to recognize that prostitution is an oppressive system and not an individual choice. Prostitution is a system that thrives on other oppressive systems and the three most important being capitalism, patriarchy, and misogyny. If you don't recognize each of those three oppressive systems in and of themselves and how that relates to prostitution being an oppressive system. And if you can't recognize that prostitution is this oppressive system that is derivative of those three, then of course you're going to see quote unquote sex work as an autonomous individual choice. But if you educate yourselves and recognize how each of those oppressive systems play out in and of themselves, and then recognize that the demand and the supply and, and trafficking, how those all come from those oppressive systems, then you'll see how sex could never be considered work and commodifying someone's body and gender-based violence can never be viewed as a profession. Yeah, something that I've really learned in this whole process of educating and talking to people about our views and them being surprised is that somehow sex work as a term has been touted as something that you're supposed to say, that's the PC thing to say, that acknowledges that it's a job like any other. And here we are screaming from our rooftops, like it's not, no other job requires you to be penetrated multiple times a day by strangers. No other job leaves you with such traumatic mental health injuries and physical injuries that last a lifetime. No other job puts you in the position of, is my next client going to be the one who kills me and leaves you with such PTSD. And so it's really important for us to convey the message that it's not a job like any other and it's not something that our society should embrace as work. That said, is there a stigma for the person in prostitution? No, we want to really remove that stigma and we really want to shift it to the person who buys someone for sex. And I think also to add to that with this term sex work, I think we also need to emphasize the fact that it's coming from a very privileged perspective. Many individuals that are claiming sex work or, or identify as sex workers have not actually been in penetrative prostitution. A lot of them have, but there's a really chunky percentage of individuals who claim that they're sex workers that have only done things like webcamming and phone sex operating and stripping. And they seem to be the loudest people Absolutely. in this movement. But they're also the same individuals. I'm not going to say all because there are a lot that are, are black and brown and exploited, but a lot of them are the same individuals who are coming from backgrounds where mommy and daddy's credit card can pay for their tuition and they can decide at any point that they're bored with stripping and go back home. However, we need to recognize, you know, a lot of people try to separate stripping and webcamming from streetwalking or, you know, Backpage or Craigslist.com, and they're not recognizing that webcamming, phone sex operating, and stripping are all pathways of entry into streetwalking mm -hmm. and more intervaginal or, or intra... Uh, venous prostitution. So, you know, a lot of people, again, going back to that, that question of links, we really need to recognize how they're all interconnected. Yeah. And many of those that are in strip clubs, many people don't recognize that pimps and sex buyers are the people who fill those rooms. This goes down and a lot of people think, you know, pimps are those who like throw you into a van and like chain you up to walls. That's not necessarily what prostitution looks like, especially here in the States where everything is so modernized. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that pimps can also be the club owners that are taking a percentage of everything that you make. You know, sex buyers are the people in the room. They're not just throwing the money. People don't recognize what actually happens yeah. in these back rooms and strip clubs. So I think there's a lot of focus on stripping right now because of the Super Bowl 
Bowl and the halftime <laughs> show, and then yeah. and because of the Hustler movie, and that movie was um, it was hard for a lot of us to watch because it really glamorized stripping and um, showed a bunch of women who were empowered enough to 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 stand up against the men who wanted to have sex with them. The one good thing is that it showed the link between prostitution and stripping and that men, a dance is no longer enough. Now they want to have penetrative sex, but it showed this narrative of women who can say no to that and who can rob these men and live a glamorous, glorious life. When in reality, it's not any different. You don't have the choice. You don't have the power to say no. And these movies, they, they're not showing, like you said earlier, you know, the harms of sex buyers. Now, granted, you know, some people try to argue, well, they did show the hardships that you experience in the back room. What they're not showing you in Pretty Woman and Hustlers, when you say no to a sex buyer in the back room, well, it's like, you know, the, the curse words that you're called, the slaps on the face, because they think that they are entitled to say whatever they want and you must abide. The acts that, you know, in my personal experience, I can tell you the amount of times that somebody put money on a desk and told me that I had to bark like a dog or get on my knees or do X, Y, Z because you are inferior in prostitution when you're exploited. Even when you're in the stripping industry and you're in those back rooms, you still have to do the things that appeal to these people's personal desires. Yeah, we have a study that shows that over 43% of men surveyed sex buyers um, believe that as soon as they pay for a woman, they believe they can do whatever they want. They own her. She's a piece of chattel at that yeah. point and they can do whatever they want and that's where the violence and abuse really occurs. Yeah. If you want to get into the mind of a sex buyer, check out a John review board, check out a hobby board, look at the reviews they leave about the individuals that they pay for. Yeah, we recently just uh, read one that talked about women as chicken. And if you want your chicken organic, you got to go to the nice stores. And these are review boards that exist solely for the purpose of sex buyers to review the women that they buy. And you don't, as the woman, you don't have a choice if you're reviewed. It lives online forever. And you graduate the more women you review and buy, the higher level of access you get on these review boards. And you get rewarded. And It's disgusting. Yeah. It's You know, I didn't even know that review boards existed until a sex buyer of mine came to me and said, I'm going to rate you X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? And some of them you read and it says she was dead-eyed. She was disassociated. She just laid, I mean, of course. Which speaks to the PTSD that we, you know, I, I'm still suffering with a whole bunch of mental illnesses from the things that I've seen in prostitution. And the fact that these sex buyers know that. They know that you're disassociated. They know that you're not there in the room with them. You're present. They know that you don't like the sex. Many of them have outwardly said to me, you know, I know you don't enjoy it. So why are you continuing to buy this? All goes back to this idea of privilege and male entitlement and how all of this discretionary income is the person, for lack of a better term, that literally exploits you and chooses your power and your choice for you. There's also this notion in the movement to fully decriminalize that you can keep it separate, that this is for consenting adults. So I have a question, Melanie, how many of your sex buyers asked, are you over 18? (laughs) None. How many of them asked, are you consenting to this? Do you want to be here or are you under control of a pimp or are you a foster youth who was exploited because of your vulnerabilities? None of them. None of them. And, right? and There's no ID card that, that shows. Of course not. Of course not. And that's a great point. You know, we need to emphasize sex buyers do not differentiate whether you identify as a consensual sex worker or if you identify as a trafficking victim. It doesn't matter to them. Their money is the only ID that you have on you at all period. And people really need to recognize this debate is becoming this 
huge political media propaganda and we're seeing, you know, A versus B, really it's C that controls all of this, but nobody wants to talk about that, right? They want to see the caddy fights. They want to see where people disagree. We're not focusing on the right things here. We need to focus on these people who are continuing to watch these TV fights and see this media debate while at the same time just keeping their money in their wallet, deciding, you know, when you guys are done, come over here. You know, I'm still here waiting for you and here to take control of you. So we really need to shift our focus and our narrative. Absolutely. So, Alexi, you know, just to conclude, do you want to just tell us where we are now with legislation and what our next steps are? Yeah, so we were in Albany yesterday. We're drafting this incredible piece of legislation that allocates for services and funding for the survivors who are trying to exit prostitution or even those who are still in prostitution. And we are hoping to introduce it in the next few months. We will push for it and lobby for it and trying to spread the word as much as we can. And really, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, what can I do? Have these conversations with people. Just challenge the narrative, challenge the social norm that uh, sex work is work, if you hear it. You can direct them to our website, equalitymodelny.org. And you can follow us on social media. It's no buyer, no pimp, NY. And um, thanks for listening. Thank you. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.